Hello and welcome to The Appetite, a podcast all about food, body, sport, and mental health. Brought to you by Opal Food and Body Wisdom, an eating disorder treatment program in Seattle, Washington. This podcast is all about bringing the themes of our work as clinicians into a wider conversation. I'm your host, Carter Umhau, a therapist, artist, and writer. Today, we've got Opal co-founder and psychologist Lexi Giblin to join me and talk about facing fears. So today, Lexi and I are here talking about facing fears, Yes, um, which is a group at Opal, Yes, but it's also a bit of a philosophy to live by, too. True that. <laughs> so I'm Lexi Giblin and have been running the Facing Fears group at Opal since we opened and have major passion about facing fears in general in life, both because witnessing it in clients and what it what it does. But also in my personal life, it's been a real at a North Star, mm-hmm. I would say. Mm-hmm. My life would be very different right now if I didn't face fears Actively, regularly. Yeah. Right. So Yeah. So with facing fears at Opal, I think mm-hmm. probably maybe some people can ma- imagine exactly what that is. And I would imagine most people can't. So I would love to just start with getting a little bit of perspective and context around why that group is part of Opal, and then why we would be talking about it for everyone else and for ourselves too. Well, you know, it was born out of this, just noticing how much avoidance was happening, you know, and how much anxiety was guiding decision-making. And so one of our one of our ways of thinking in the group is, you know, to make decisions based on our values versus mm-hmm. our fears, letting fear you know, take a backseat to what we're really wanting in our life. Because, of course, so often we most want what we most fear. And and it's tough because, of course, anxiety tells you to avoid the feared experience, right? So you, when you're facing fears, you have to go opposite to what your anxiety is telling you. So focusing on our decisions based on our values. And then also in that group, we're working on what we would call exposure therapy, which is confronting anxiety. So creating situations that typically bring up anxiety in order to have a different experience with the feared stimulus or experience. So in exposure therapy, the feared experience or stimuli is paired with safety. And so over repeated exposures to that fear, the safety starts to get blended with the feeling of fear. And so safety starts to penetrate as we do more and more exposures. So we're doing some exposure therapy in there. And one of the ways we also talk about it is we think of our comfort zone in life as a confining box. Mm -hmm. And then um, what we do in Facing Fears is step outside of that comfort zone box and into where the magic happens, (laughs) where vitality lives. Because we, we can probably all relate to this feeling that you get when you when you move towards anxiety. You can feel really alive, especially if it goes, you know, in the way that you had hoped. And this incredible vitality can be found because you're often just stepping right into what you care most about. Mm. That feels really resonant to me in some ways. And I also have had the experience of very much not being in touch with what I actually want out of a situation and just knowing that. I feel anxious and scared and maybe should try it anyway. Yeah. And it can be rewarding, but I definitely know that I grow, whatever it is. At least I've gotten rid of the fear a little bit. Right. (laughs) So you might just say, 
I, I just am going to step into this and see what happens. So the, the, what's going to happen next is unknown. Mm-hmm. You might not have an expectation, just want to see what happens. Some hypothesis testing. Yeah. Yeah. So with eating disorders, um, we've certainly talked on the podcast quite a bit about the over-controlled temperament. And it's easy for me to imagine and to know, too, out of experience, of course, that the eating disorder client often does have an over-controlled temperament. And so leaning into anxiety and leaning into a place of risk-taking is not going to be natural. How would you explain some of the bigger picture benefits of that? Right. So risk aversion or risk mm-hmm. threat sensitivity is one of the prominent characteristics of the overcontrolled individual. So in the case of the overcontrolled temperament, the person may experience neutral stimuli as threatening. So that means they're getting lots of false positives, mm-hmm. right? So lots of information that's telling them that this is uh, to be avoided when actually it's quite safe. So you can think about, I mean, I I think we all can identify with places in our lives where our anxiety is there, but there's something that we may desperately want or need in our lives and and the anxiety is telling us to avoid it. And with our clients at Opal, the feared stimuli or the feared experience is food often. Mm -hmm. So we're watching folks approach the feared stimuli you know, meal after meal and helping them learn to experience the safety that can be found while experiencing food, uh, which is a tall, tall task. I, I mean, every day at Opal, it's just, um, you just watch the bravery because the anxiety is so strong. They're facing a fear every, every meal often mm. and keeping on, keeping on with it. It's just, it's, it's a beautiful thing to behold, which also gets me to another idea that we certainly work within facing fears at Opal and I found to be so true in my life is the facing fears together. Hmm. When you share the experience of facing fears, maybe you have a friend that you're both doing something that's scary together. It's so powerful to have the connectedness within the facing of the fears. So we often think about the relational impact of facing fears together at Opal and beyond Yeah, I was just thinking about the example of even doing some sort of like risky type adventure Mm. sport. I don't know why I think of that with facing fears. Maybe it's fear factor or something, but (laughs) like that you would be bungee jumping, but doing that, actually holding someone's hand, the like the clarity and the calm that might be able to come from like, okay, we're in this together. And then the bond afterward right? to reinforce that that went well. We're good. That was so fun. And we inspire each other. I mean, that's that's one of the things that oh, it's so great to be in Facing Fears on Friday mornings. I go in super anxious. Every Friday morning, I'm a mm-hmm. little anxious. We do the thing that we've decided to do. And then on the other side of that experience, I feel connected to folks in the room and feel inspired often. Like, wow, if, if they can do it, I can do it. I've got to do this thing that I'm scared of in my life and they're doing it in all these kinds of ways. It's very, it's quite inspirational. Can you tell me more specifically about what different tasks you guys would do in there? I've, I, I've been in there before, (laughs) full disclosure, but I guess for our audience, can you tell a little bit more about what happens? Yeah. Well, we, um, set up all situations that tend to create anxiety in most, in most people. So we have probably 15 different feared activities that we do, including karaoke (laughs) (laughs) and open mic and eye contact. We have a just do it 
day where we just go for whatever we haven't been, whatever we've been avoiding, you know, the emails, the voicemails, the applying to school, looking for a job, whatever it is, the just do it hour. And we all get together and say, we're going to, you know, this is what I'm going to do. And then everyone helps each other as they do the feared activity. We do real retail therapy. Also, we go out shopping. And that is often quite anxiety provoking for folks who are recovering from an eating disorder. So that is uh, just a number of different experiences. There's a quote that I wrote down that I love that kind of highlights what we're talking about, and this is from Marianne Williamson. She writes, As we let our own lights shine, we unconsciously give people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. Mm. That is much of what we experience in facing fears and also, you know, just in our friendships. You know, a lot of times we'll see a friend doing something and, wow, I can do that. The possibility is more present in my mind by seeing you do that. And that makes me think of an example that maybe I've referenced on here before of choosing to do an improv class when I was younger. Yes. <laughs> and I remember very much talking to my best friend, Sarah, on her bed when we were like 18, 19 years old. I remember it very vividly because it, I was freaked out. She was describing an improv class. She's an actress. And she was describing some some introductory exercise they were doing. And I my eyes were just wide. Like there is not a chance in hell I would ever, ever, ever do that. I would die of humiliation. And she just sort of looked at me and I thought, okay, yeah, mm -hmm, you're right. I need to sign up. <laughs> and so that was the impetus just like to notice that I was scared out of my mind, even imagining it, I felt scared that it must be something that I needed to move toward. Uh -huh. um, and she's an incredibly inspiring person. I think that there wouldn't have been even an access for me to imagine what it would be like to do something so new without having been inspired by her, for uh -huh. sure. And it wound up being transformative in terms of the amount of self-consciousness that I moved through just by showing up to do that weekly for six weeks or whatever it was. Wow. I love how the friendship plays such a strong role in that. Mm -hmm. So in my example, I like <laughs> certainly noticing the amount of physical anxiety and nausea I thought or I felt around improv was an indicator that I needed to face a fear. But I'm curious what you think in terms of what other things can often be indicators for a fear that's there. Well, I think when we have a strong, strong emotion about something that could s signal that there's something there, there's something meaningful there, or you wouldn't care about it, mm -hmm. right? And sometimes, of course, we feel anxious because we it's smart to avoid the situation. But sometimes we feel anxiety that's, that, that's telling us that there's something important to be learned in this um, approach of this experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Living in fear of an experience for your life is, in, if you always know that there's a monster on the other side of the wall, you know, you're going to maybe live differently and make choices based on avoidance of the monster. Yeah. You know, and that may be, limit yourself and you won't have as much freedom in your decision making, perhaps because you are aware of the monster and you're making decisions to avoid the monster. Mm. But the monster... Maybe I shouldn't use monster. <laughs> but what I would want to emphasize as well is the, the learning that takes place 
when we do something we don't typically do, when we step outside of our comfort zone and, and into the magic where the magic happens, you will experience new stimuli and that stimuli creates new learning. So if we didn't, if we did the same thing every day, day in, day out, we wouldn't have access to the same learning situations as we would if we do step into our anxiety and take risks. So the learning is really important in all, all of this too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You have described many times the like amount of fear you felt in opening Opal to begin yeah. with. Yeah. I'd love to hear about what that, mm-hmm. yeah, what kind of monsters were there <laughs> at that moment in your life? Yeah. So that is was definitely maybe my biggest facing fear of my life, or certainly my career. Mm-hmm. And I was in it with Julie and Kara. So that makes it makes it feel really different. But Julie, Kara and I were all also taking risks in our relationships, you know, because we how were we going to do working together? Was this wise for us to be in business with each other? What is this going to do with our for our relationships? And there's a lot of risk in that. And then also, I mean, what we did to make Opal happen involved incredible risk that I just can't even believe that we took when I look back on it. As we took out a, an SBA loan, we you know put our savings in a pot, and we signed a ten-year lease on you know five six thousand square feet, and we had a bunch of credit cards with zero percent financing if you could pay it off within a year, Whew. you know. And so we we racked up all kinds of debt on our credit cards, our personal credit cards, in order to launch Opal. And of course, we didn't know. What would happen, it was a tremendous risk, certainly financially, but um, beyond that, it was, you know, career risk in a major way and all the emotions that come with that, you know. So before jumping, boy, we really were sitting with a lot of anxiety and I never felt so incredibly vital in my work. Mm. I mean, the, the amount of energy I had during that, the launch phase and beforehand, I just, it was like, I couldn't even, I couldn't stop doing the (laughs) opal work because I was just completely gripped and excited and, you know, had this incredible surge of vitality and just, it was, it was an amazing time. And it kind of has this feeling of like, I want to do that again. I want to do that again. (laughs) What, what did your life look like during that time? Like, were you, Or even leading up to it, were you working on other things, still seeing clients and yeah. then moving into it? Or I was working private practice and I was I was teaching at the UW and uh, I left the UW, which was my home for, I think I'd been there for 15 years with graduate school and then teaching for seven or eight years. And so I left UW and that felt like a facing fear to leave what felt like my home to launch Opal. So I stopped doing teaching to work on Opal, but then I kept my private practice going. And I was a mom, a younger child at that time. So that was a really intense phase. Really, really incredible though. I just think of it as warm and fuzzies, you know, when I think back, but that's because everything turned out. Um, (laughs) Yeah. That 10 year lease has been filled with actual people in the building yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> in this case the risk was was very much worth it in hindsight so you you said earlier when you were talking about 
the philosophy behind facing fear is that it's often pointing us towards something that we want desperately or that we mm-hmm. we desire. I'm so curious about that in this story of opening Opal because mm-hmm. you clearly felt so at home at, at UW mm-hmm. and you, you know, clearly were so invested in your private practice. Mm-hmm. Was there sort of a seed that started growing around like, oh, I could do this or you know, what, yeah, what was that? Yeah. What was that about? Well, maybe I'd go back and share another big moment in my life related to your question, which was, you know, in graduate school, I had, I think, diagnosable public speaking phobia. Mm. And I can remember going into my dissertation and the incredible, almost near panic I was in to go and present. And I went through graduate school in this really heightened state of anxiety because there's a lot of speaking publicly yeah and (laughs) saying that on a podcast now and here I am on a podcast yeah so then I was when I graduated I was offered a position as a lecturer at the UW how ironic I know and (laughs) and this meant getting up in front of 200 students four days a week for an hour I remember feeling so incredibly scared and you know just if I would have followed my anxiety clearly I would have said no to the opportunity but then at the same time I felt like there's something in this Mm -hmm. I I I do enjoy teaching if it weren't for the anxiety I would love to do that job and love working with college students and love the subject of abnormal psychology and so I decided to go for it and so over the course of seven years of teaching, my anxiety eventually became manageable. And it's really what I think allowed me space to to consider doing something like Opal. I don't think I would have ever jumped from public speaking phobia to Opal. Right. <laughs> so there was this this, this, bridge. this bridge that I, I used to get to a place where that felt capable of facing a, this yet another fear and living into something that I cared deeply about and not letting fear dictate my decisions. So yeah, so then I was teaching. I think that brought me confidence about it. And then, you know, I think Julie, Kerr and I, when we were in conversations about Opal, we just, we, the three of us all just felt such excitement about it and the, the feeling of creating something, taking risks with others is something that I, I seek out in mm-hmm. different ways because of how incredible the experience has been, like just to join with others and creating something that you are all passionate about and going for it and share the risk. You're kind of sharing the risk more. You wouldn't be alone in the loss. Yeah. It sounds so much more fun too. So much more fun. Right. (laughs) Simply more fun in a way to get to actually be able to bounce those things off Mm -hmm. of other people and share the excitement and share the thrill and share the process. So, yeah. So I say without facing fears, I would be, I would have a different life. Certainly I wouldn't be talking on this podcast right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I was thinking earlier about how the idea of noticing like where you feel desire, that can be an indicator of where there might also be fear attached to it. And also feeling fear can be a sign that there's some desire that kind of works both ways. Mm-hmm. And and I also know that for myself, there have been times in my life that I'm really clued into desire and I'm very much like, I want to do that. And I want to try this. And I want to take this risk or I, or even like, I feel scared and I need to grow and I'm like desperate to grow because this isn't working. But the in-between of feeling sort of apathetic Mm. or comfortable or uh, just ambivalent is, it's a lot harder for me to tap into either fear 
or desire. And I think especially for for people that are, you know, in a comfortable life already or or doing something that they care about enough for, you know, whatever, that noticing an opportunity to face a fear, I think, could be difficult mm-hmm. um, if that if that seed hasn't even been it isn't recognizable. I was going to say it, the seed hadn't been planted, but I am. I kind of trust that most people have some seeds of desire planted. Yeah, but it, they might be hidden a little bit. Yeah, I love the way of, of thinking about it as desire mm-hmm. and using that language is is opens it up. Yeah, you know? I really want to write a book one day. <laughs> Shouldn't have said that on the podcast, Whoa. but I do. I do. I do. I do. And I I was at Elliott Bay Bookstore last night, and I was just wandering around and. It's sort of a dangerous place for me to go in when you want to write a book and you're surrounded by books and you haven't even started. Mm. It sort of feels like both uh, you've walked into a, a gold mine and also you've walked into hell a little bit. <laughs> like all these people have done this and I haven't, you know. So I was I was looking at all the books and normally I go, oh, I wish I had written that. Oh, it'd be so fun to write something like that. Oh, I really like that. And then I get all upset. And yesterday I was just like, you know, screw it. Like, I'm I'm not going to pick up a single book. I'm sitting down right here in this chair and I'm going to start writing. <laughs> so I did that for five minutes and left not feeling nauseated. But it was it was a place where the the fear of not doing it was able to be like an action step rather than suppressed desire in some way. Or So would you, are you, would you say you're more in a, a stuck place with it in a place of comfort and not wanting to step into discomfort of writing yeah yeah <laughs> yeah definitely yeah, yeah. it I feels hard to I like I noticed that there's a lot of desire and then that feels scary like yeah. the risk taking of actually being like well that matter that would matter a lot to me I would like that mm. it's it's difficult to yeah. even tolerate it's not that I feel like oh I'm so scared that I would fail but just even scared of the feeling of desire itself sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Claiming your desire. Mm-hmm. And I love that you just claimed it on the podcast. I know. What a regret I'm already having. <laughs> <laughs> we all know now. Uh-oh. So then there's this, now that now we have this social connection to you, this, you know, I'll yep. probably nudge you about that. God. Moving forward. <laughs> yeah. Feels sick. No. I think <laughs> something you. else, you know, I, I would say is when we think about the stages of change, Usually we are in a place of cognitive dissonance or some, there's an angsty part of us that maybe part of us that feels that desire and that feels the anxiety of avoiding it. And you're just feeling this emotion and discomfort. And that is a motivating emotion to have. Mm -hmm. You know, it sounds like you were in maybe a dissonant place with writing when you were in the bookstore. Yeah. That idea of dissonance, I think, is significant to mm-hmm. to that point around, you know, what if you're not feeling something really large? Because right. I would imagine if you're feeling a lot of dissonance a lot, then maybe you start numbing out. Like, it's just kind of an overwhelm mm-hmm. state that could happen <laughs> mm-hmm. to be in conflict with yourself in some ways. And that makes me just curious even about our clients again around yeah. a numbing out that happens eventually right. if there's too much conflicting feeling. Yeah, that that word you used the word comfortable earlier. Yeah, mm-hmm. and if you're not you're not usually comfortable if you're feeling dissonance, you know, mm-hmm. and you can bring about dissonance in different ways. But I also think life just has a way of sending us challenges and mm-hmm. dissonance. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. 
another way of thinking about this, you know, a lot of our culture thinks about approaching um, anxiety. The idea is more to decrease anxiety, mm-hmm. you know, to increase comfort, decrease anxiety. And when we're facing fears, of course, we're we're coming from a different paradigm where we're saying facing anxiety is where it's at. So it's a different way of thinking, right? This is choosing to be uncomfortable. And that is not necessarily the the way our culture thinks about emotions. Moving towards difficult emotions is uh, foreign to lots of folks. And we think about it as good therapy hurts. Mm-hmm. You know, usually... Usually when you're changing, it's uncomfortable. When you're learning, sometimes it can be uncomfortable. When you're doing good therapy, it can be hurtful. It can be painful. Mm. It's a sign that growth is happening and you're taking in new experiences. So if there was some sort of cultural shift even around risk and growth being more of a value than comfort, I can only imagine (laughs) what things would shift. Yeah. Also to think about how perfectionism plays a role in facing fears, because a lot of times we'll not want to do something because we're not expert at it yet. And of course, when we start something, anything new, we're just not going to be good at it. And you're not going to be perfect at it. But perfectionism can often be a a reason to not do the thing that scares you, because you're just going to be floundering probably. If you've never done it before, you don't know what's what's what. It's going to be messy until you reach that place of expertise. It's going to be a while. And to tolerate all of the imperfection of of approaching it is it's really uncomfortable. So when you were starting Opal, back to that example, was yeah. there, like, how did you tolerate the, the mess of that? I would imagine a lot of, of stuff that you were doing was not stuff that you had done before. No. Yeah. <laughs> the learning curves were steep in all directions. You know, I'd learned real like commercial real estate and you know, all these different domains that I didn't study, you know, in school. And the learning curve was really steep and the anxiety and dealing with perfectionism was part of that for sure, because it just was not going to be perfect and it was messy all the time and mistakes were made constantly. And that's probably why we, we have the value wabi-sabi, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is where we celebrate imperfection and the beauty in imperfection. Um, I think that a lot of those values are born out of our, ex, you know, Julie Karenai's experiences. But perfectionism, it would not, if I was to be perfect, try to be perfect and have to have that standard for myself, there's no way. I mean, every day it's a new mistake or a new, new learning of something that we, you know, something that we need to do differently. So it's just making that assumption that that's going to happen most days in some way or another. So so starting something off with the assumption that it's maybe not going to go so well, but it's still important right. is part of dealing with the perfectionism. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Is, is that kind of values-oriented thinking one of the main ways that you would say is kind of the, the way that you would walk through dealing with perfectionism? I do personally. You know, I think about what is this, what is this, what's the purpose of my life? What's the meaning? And you can tolerate a lot when you're doing something you really care about. You know, when you are really engaged and feeling vital about something, you can tolerate all kinds of difficult emotions because it's deeply meaningful to you. And it's existentially, it's tapping something in you that matters mm-hmm. and it overrides. I, I found it, oh, it tends to override, you, you know, the, the discomfort that comes with it. Mm. Yeah. I love that. Mm-hmm. 
Thanks so much for joining us today. And thanks to Jackstraw Cultural Center for sound engineering, to Aaron Davidson for the Appetite's original music, and to Sarah Taylor for production assistance and editing. Stay in touch with what's new on the Appetite by subscribing to the podcast on your preferred podcast app. If you have the time, we also love getting reviews of the podcast. So write a little something or another to us and let us know how you're liking it. If you have any questions or just want to connect, email us at theappetite at opalfoodandbody.com. If you or someone you know is struggling, please feel free to check out our treatment options at opalfoodandbody.com. It's also a place that you can just get a little bit more of a sense of our culture. To stay in touch otherwise, please follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Talk to you next time. 